here is singer-songwriter, broadcaster, audio-video artist, entertainment agent, and your host for the Dharmic Evolution. It's the master storyteller himself, James Kevin O'Connor. And welcome back once again to the Dharmicest of evolutions you've ever experienced. Hey, great to have you guys along once again. And if you're digging the show, please subscribe to it so it can come right to your phone. The easiest way, go to dharmicevolution.com and just pick your favorite platform. Apple Podcasts, Spotify is really hot these days. And I'm going to do a, um, I think I'm going to do a podcast about uh, platforms for streaming and for podcasts because I think it's kind of a fascinating subject. Anyway, our guest today, he's a best-selling author, a sought-after keynote speaker. He's an associate professor of leadership and innovation. His newest book, Friend of a Friend, offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build key connections. It's one based on the science of human behavior, not the same old networking advice. He's delivered keynotes to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders of the United States Naval Academy. His TED Talk has been viewed over 2 million times, and he is a regular contributor to Harvard Business News. You better strap up your seatbelts, because we're taking a ride today on the Dharmic Evolution with David Berkus. On the Dharmic Evolution, it's a pleasure today to have David Berkus. David, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, you know, I've been studying your brand uh, the last couple of days and uh, really unbelievable um, business that you've built. And the, the things that you're, you're putting out there are really incredible. Like some of the things I want to go into with you is, um, you know, making use of hidden networks and all of these things that I never even paid any attention to, social capital, you know, what do you do with your networks and everything. So to start off, um, can I ask you, how did you originally get connected to the space that you're in now? Like, what was the genesis that got you, like, interested in in public speaking and and teaching and all of this? Yeah, so, so interested in and then actually into are two different questions, right? Um, so I grew up when I was in high school, uh, I thought I, I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a writer. Right. And so I went to undergrad college to study English and creative writing. And the, the grand sort of, um, existential crisis when you're that young is, oh, am I going to be like a James Patterson or Jack Kerouac? Right. Am I going to be right. a literary writer or a commercial fiction writer? Right. Um, and in that time I read my first couple of, First, that sort of creative nonfiction and the narrative nonfiction, and then straight into like your Malcolm Gladwell or Daniel Pink or the Heath Brothers, um, what we would call social science nonfiction. And I thought, Gladwell in particular, I thought it was fascinating. These are people that are using the elements of good storytelling. They're just as, as talented a writer as any literary novelist, and yet they're writing things that are that are helpful to the world, that are... Um, that are well better received than a lot of literary novels. Let's be honest. They're not starving, right? They're building a much more interesting career. So I left college thinking that forget this fiction thing. Let's write these kind of nonfiction. So I went to graduate school to study organizational psychology because I'm still 20 something years old. I know nothing, right? As I figured out, let me learn all of the stuff that they're writing about so that I can sort of write about it. But you don't graduate even out of graduate school with like, here's your job as a, as a, published author, whatever, you've got to start building out 
uh, a platform and you've got to start building a network into that world. And as I said before we started recording, my actual mechanism for that was we started a podcast in January 2010. Now, it's hard to convey just how difficult starting a podcast in January 2010 was because there were none. There was not even a microphone that could plug directly into a computer. There was just into a normal soundboard, right, with either a a 3.5 millimeter or that bigger um, uh, the XLR, soundboard. yeah, 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 uh, right. and and then from a soundboard you could USB into a computer, but that was it, right? Yeah. Um, the advantage that was nice was that nobody knew what in the world this thing was. So when I started cold emailing all the people that I admired uh, as fellow authors and inviting them into this new internet radio show, everybody was like, "Oh, that's interesting." So we got a lot of really great guests right off the bat. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we've been off to the races since there. I, I leveraged that network, did a lot of writing for um, online and print publications in that space for a while. And then about three years into doing all that, got the first book deal. Um, and we've been off to the races ever since. Yeah, congratulations on your book, your newest one, Friend of a Friend. Um, I was checking that out. And you've got, like, you've got the myths of creativity under new management. Um Really amazing. I want, let me ask you about the writing process. Um, now that we, we stopped on that, um, just as a daily practice, how do you schedule yourself? Because you, you're really busy with public speaking and all the other things that you're doing. When you're when you have a book going on, um, are you like like early morning, late at night? Like, how do you craft out the time or cut, carve out the time? You know, to do yeah, this? I, I wish I wish I had some magical daily schedule, right? Um, I mean, I should say we should separate out from when it's book writing time to when we're doing all the other stuff, right? Like one of the secrets that I learned, uh, and I think this is actually true for any artist, whether you're a writer, musician, uh, you know, playwright, actor, et cetera, um, is that it's not that I used to think that as a writer, you write a book and then you go out in the world and occasionally market it. And that's, it's actually inverse, right? The job of an author, the job, to my opinion, of any artist is to constantly be marketing oneself, constantly sort of building that audience all the time. And then occasionally you launch a creative work into that, right? Right. So when, when we're writing an actual book, it's a little bit different workflow than when we're in between books, right? Writing an actual book, I found the best system that works it sort of flows with my whole life. I have, I have, two, so I have two kids, married and have two kids, and they need to get ready for school, right? So I would love the idea of, of like, oh, I wake up in the morning before anyone else when the house is perfectly still. That doesn't really happen. Right. I either I either wake up in the morning because someone is slapping me in the face because they got awake before I did, one of the kids, <laughs> or uh, I wake up in the morning and I panic because I realize we all slept in too late, and now I got to go get the kids up and get them ready for school, right? <laughs> get them ready for school, get them on the bus, et cetera. And then around 8, 15 or so, I'm back at the house and it's empty and quiet, right? And then I can actually do the writing. Yeah. How old are your um, so kids? What I, uh, they're seven and five. So oh, second okay. grade in, in kindergarten. Yeah. Um, so then I can actually do the writing. And what I try and do is set a, a word goal of 500. If, I'm, if I was a slacker and I need to make up some time, about 750 words, never really more than about 1,200 to 1,500 words. After that, my brain is mush, right? So, yeah. so when write, that's the interesting thing about writing a book is we're really writing, uh, I mean, 500 words is two pages, right? So two pages at a time. I don't, I've never had one of those long binges where, oh, it suddenly all just flows out of me. I found that after about three pages, I'm, it's just mush. And I, would, I could keep writing, but it would, be, would require way more editing. Um, so after that, we pack it up. And then um, usually at that point, it's about 11 in the morning. So then I'll try and go to the gym and get some exercise, 
have lunch, come back. And then the afternoon is actually when we do calls like what we're recording right now and all that, what I call reactive work, right? There's right. productive work and reactive work. Yeah. And all of the reactive work happens in the afternoon. I don't, I've never studied like chronotypes and all that sort of thing to know if I'm a morning person, or early person, whatever. I do it just because it's quiet. It's quiet. It's right when they go um, from school. I have that moment where everything's settled down. It just seems like the right time to just knock it out. And then I don't worry about it for the rest of the day. Whereas if I did all the reactive work first, I feel like I'd be struggling to find that last hour in the day that I need to get those 500 words done. So I just knock it out right away. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you have the, when the kids are that young too, it's like, you know, you want time with them too, especially before they get off to school and everything, you know, to see what, what's up with them. Um, and if you're in the yeah, middle and, of and writing, you know, it's like, wait a minute, I, I'm, you don't want to be, say, hey, you're disrupting me. You know, it's it should be, I got to be there for you, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so, and, yeah. and, you know, I'm, I'm married to uh, an ER doctor, so her schedule's all over the place. So we very rarely get like sit down family dinners like I imagine happened in like the 1950s Leave it to Beaver era yeah. that we still associate with sort of good family. But we all get to have breakfast together. All four of us basically get to eat breakfast most days together. Oh, so that's, that's nice. That is much more of a special time to yeah. us than that. Um, the nice thing about ch chucking the reactive work on the other side of the day is I, I try and do that reactive work till 4.30, 5 o'clock. But there's days where they get off the school bus, they come home, it's 3.30, um, and they run right downstairs. And I either forget to put the red tab on my door that says, hey, I'm, I'm in the middle of a podcast or something like that. Right. Um, and they jump in and then I get to decide like, ah, you know, yeah. everything else can, because it's reactive work. Everything else can wait till tomorrow. Let's go hang out. Yeah. Uh, which is a lot of fun. That's uh, awesome that you guys spend time and have meals together, especially first thing in the morning. You know, that's really important. Um, I wanted to circle back to what you were just talking about as far as authors and the trend that I've noticed over the last probably 10 years or so is um, that like you just, you just described that. It's not so much writing the book and then going out, hey, it's market time for the book, but but the brand is more important um, mm -hmm. than whatever, because there's so many other things behind the curtain now. And I've noticed that everybody uses that. It's almost like the podcast is an ancillary piece of my world for other pieces of business and other things that I do, just like mm -hmm. probably you're speaking. And I've noticed more and more people are putting it out there. For instance, a couple of years ago, you two put out an album. They just gave it away because right. the shows are so much more, you know, lucrative and I, you sell the merch at the shows, obviously. And, you know, that's where, that's where the lion's share of the profits are being made too. Um, so I guess it's, you know, there's a different way that business is driven today than it used to be. You know, most authors don't, like very few authors can make uh, a, a complete living on just writing books. Um, yeah. Just like singers and songwriters, the same thing, you know. So you need this whole other, you know, mindset to go out and say, how do I do this? And you seem to have done a really good job at this. Yeah. I mean, to, to some extent, I, I always wonder which came first, right? Like, we, we talk about how these worlds are, the business model behind these worlds are kind of merging between writers and musicians, right? But I, I almost think for writers, it was true long before it was true for musicians. I mean, there's definitely the, like the James Pattersons of the world that can get to a point where they can, they're churning out a new thriller novel every year, and then the, those sales are, are so good. Right. Um, but especially in the world of nonfiction, it's almost non-existent. Even, even when advances were 
better, which every, no matter whenever, whatever year you publish the book in, someone will tell you, oh, advances were better back in the old days. Like, yeah. And I, and, but even if you talk to people who published books in the seventies, they'll tell you they were better back. Right. So, yeah. Um, so to some extent, I don't think they were ever actually that good. Right. We always knew like the job was either from in, in the nonfiction world, you get invited to go give speeches or come into a company and do a workshop, do longer term consulting. The book was always that thing that, as Seth Godin always says, the book is a souvenir of the idea, yeah. right? And then what you sell is the implementation of the idea. The this, this book just presents, here it is, um, do you like it, do you want it? And then what you sell is sort of that implementation. And, and you know, the, I think music, I think this probably started in the world of Napster and then iTunes and et cetera, when royalties went crazy down. But to some extent, it was always true even there. Even the deals that you would get with record deals paled in comparison to what you could make on shows it's just now way more true, right? People will pay a whole lot more to see you play live, something they got for free on Spotify because they were willing to listen to an ad or whatever, right? Right. Um, And that changes the model. You notice it in music, right? There's a lot more people releasing singles every once in a while or EPs instead of just showing up every three or four years with that that long play album, right? Yeah. Um, And I think that's because that when that happens, the job becomes creative, but it also becomes a a marketing job. I don't don't like to use the term marketing. My my friend, Tim Grawl, who does a lot in the world of book marketing, he uses this great definition. He says, marketing is just trying to get as many people as you can to go from not knowing you exist to knowing you exist. And then once they know you exist, trying to be continuously helpful, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just trying to build all of those relationships all of the time. And then when that happens, the selling of the book or the selling of the album or the booking of the shows, all of that gets easier. But it's not it's no longer something you can just go hide in a cave for three years, come back and go on tour. It's something you've always got to be involved in. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the seven touches of marketing almost. You have to be out there constantly. Um, who did who did you follow when you started as far as uh, thought leaders, author? Well, you mentioned the authors, um, but as far as thought leaders and people in your space, um, is there anybody that you modeled or, lo- or looked at as to say, hey, that's kind of like the wheelhouse that, that I feel like I belong in? Yeah, yeah. And again, if we're using the music term, right, who are the influences? I, d- yeah. I definitely think that's true. I am uh, I am unapologetic in my admiration for Daniel Pink. Um, Dan's a good a good friend now, um, and he probably knows that I like to run around and refer to myself as the next, next Daniel Pink. <laughs> um, I'm pretty young. There's about a 20-year gap between the two of us, and right. I'm not... I'm not overly um, aggressive, so I figure somebody else is going to take the term next Daniel Pink, and whoever that is, I'll take it from her. Right. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> so we go with next next. Um, but that was a big influence. I I love. I mean, I read I read everything that Malcolm Gladwell writes, even when I disagree with it or think that he's cherry picking data or all of those complaints that academics make against him, because he's a brilliant storyteller, and he's constantly opening up a question in one chapter, leaving you with a cliffhanger that you makes you want to read the next chapter. There's so much to learn there. He's just not very prescriptive, right? And so when I, when I try and model my writing after people like Dan or Chip and Dan Heath, the Heath brothers that write some great books because they are describing the science, blending in storytelling, but they're willing to get prescriptive, which is what we're trying to do um, as well. Trying to say, okay, if all of this stuff is true, it's not just like, wow, isn't this fascinating? If it's true, here's what you have to do to change your life or to change your company or whatever it is. Right. Did you did you feel this way when you were in maybe late high school, early college, as far as I don't feel like I'm going to end up in a conventional 
um, industry, for lack of a better term. But um, did you have some sense of entrepreneurship that you, you, you were dying to just get out and find the right thing for you? So I wouldn't say in uh, that, that I that I had some like inclination towards that. I will say that I've, I was always a bit of a hacker in the non-technical sense. Like we talk about Bill Gates playing around with computers, whatever. I kind of, I mean, I wish I would have done that because then I would have been worth a billion dollars. But um, <laughs> I was always that person that like, I remember I, I would tear apart books, for example, to figure out how they were printed so that, and then reverse engineer. I, I, I took our, um, our high school newspaper and stuff. I was the one that figured out how to use a computer and publish desktop publishing software to make it way easier. Yeah. Um, I think we even, I was the one that figured out how to use a photocopier and a saddle stitch to make a book for our school literary magazine and all that kind of stuff. So I was always sort of tinkering in that world. I don't know that I would have called it entrepreneurial. That really didn't hit. I mean, I thought, so I graduated college. I went to graduate school part-time. I, I actually got a job in marketing for a pharmaceutical company, and I almost got fired twice during the three weeks of primary training, right? Um, and I remember my boss actually told me a year later he had dinner with one of my primary trainers, and as soon as he said the list of people that he was managing, he the, the trainer stopped on my name and went, oh, yeah, Dave Burkus. <laughs> too smart for his own good, right? So like, it was very clear. It wasn't that I didn't feel like corporate was a fit for me. It was very clear that corporate didn't feel I was a fit for them. Right, right. right. Um, so, but I mean, even then, I thought I was going to work that for 20 years or so, become this manager type person and then pivot, right? And then yeah. be do all this other stuff. And in reality, I sort of I sort of had it thrust upon me. One was that that fit, right? That corporate doesn't, and I don't really fit. Um, the other, to be candid, I, I worked for a pharmaceutical industry, and everything in every industry tangential to medicine changed in two thousand eight to two thousand nine. Yeah, when the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. passed, and right. so it was very clear that like, hmm, I should leave now before I get laid off. So that was when yeah. we took the jump. Fortunately, at that point, my wife was out of medical school and residency, so it was an easier jump to make. Yeah. We put up with uh, almost a decade of that frustration with corporate because it was very clear that I wasn't going to fit. I, I, I don't know that I got, I got promoted once in 10 years, which is not exactly a good track record. Right? Yeah. I got to do a lot of special projects and I brought a lot of different insights that I, I would argue are actually better, um, but they didn't really fit with that corporate mold, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, they probably had the sense that you were way too independent to be, you know, look, this guy can't stay in his lane because it's it's not in your nature to stay in your lane. You know, it's like right, you're, you're for looking sure. for solutions and a way to do things better. And that goes, that's counterculture to a lot of corporate America. It's just like, no, we don't, you know, we don't do that. We want to, we want to stay with things that are safe, you know? Yeah. Well, so the, the irony of course, is that since, uh, especially since 2016, when my second book came out, now corporate America pays me to come in and tell them how to deal with those exact employees. Cause the, what I've learned is that those people will be your star employees if you can accommodate them. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, if, if you can be comfortable with the idea that these people like that, the term everybody's using now is intrapreneur, right? If the entrepreneurial personality can be accommodated enough inside a company, they can unlock a ton of value. Uh, previously, these people were just sort of managed out. Right. Right. So I do a lot of work in that. My, my second book, Under New Management, is literally about what has to change about corporate America in order to accommodate the sort of uh, the, the idea that every single role needs to be a creative role now, that every role is responsible for problem solving, that every role requires a little bit of that entrepreneurship. 
Um, so the grand irony, right? I wasn't a fit and now they're asking me to come in and help them help other people fit. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, I want to dig in a little bit on uh, networking that was, was so profound, this idea. And it's, you know, it's, it sounds so simple. How could this work? Um, can you, can you like uh, share with everybody about how using your own existing network from the past um, it has more value than we ever thought possible. Yeah. So, I mean, this is to me is a fascinating bit of research that networking is sort of a four letter word to a lot of people. I mean, it's a 10 letter word, but they we treat it like it's almost a curse word. Most people hate the idea because they associate it with meeting strangers, right? Yeah, right. And introvert or extrovert, it's still awkward to be in a room where you know no one, right? We chase comfort, whether we are introverted or extroverted. Extroverts would just like to be in a big room full of people they know. Introverts would prefer the room to be smaller. But everybody is uncomfortable with the whole new thing. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there's one study that says that when we put people in those networking mixer events that we've all felt uncomfortable with, people spend the majority of their time talking to two or three people they already know, right? So they're not even yeah. meeting new people in these events designed to meet new people. The thing that I think is fascinating, if, if you could get over that discomfort hump and start talking up lots of different strangers, you would unlock a lot of value, but it takes a while. It takes a while to build rapport, to develop that relationship, to sift through which new connections are meaningful and not. Um, and so that can get difficult. So something that works far better for most people is to take advantage of what's already in their network. And in network science uh, research, we use the term weak tie or dormant tie for two specific types of people that you already know. I'm a weak tie is someone you know, but you don't know that well. I, I always describe these in like, if you work in a large corporation, a weak tie inside that corporation are people that you know, but you only see them when there's cake in the break room, right? Yeah, right. Or those people that you meet every once, you see every once in a while at a specific event, but you've never really had an in-depth conversation with them. You've got rapport. You don't, you're, you know, you're well-wishers, but you don't know yeah. them on a, on a deep level. Dormant ties are a little bit different. Dormant ties are people that you... Uh, knew deeply at one point, but for one reason or another, you fell by the wayside. They moved or you changed jobs or just life happened and now you don't talk as often. And what we know from a network science perspective is you know, you're, the people that are cl closest to you that you talk to all of the time have access to mostly the same information that you have. They, they are closest to usually the same people you're closest to. Um, if A knows B and B knows C, there's a really good chance that A and C already know each other. So it's your weak ties and dormant ties because they're somewhere else in the network and the community and the industry. They're more likely to have new information, new ideas, new potential introductions, just like strangers are. The difference is they're not strangers. They're already your friends. You've already built rapport. And so it's much more comfortable to go back and just rewarm that relationship than it is to strike up uh, a totally new relationship and build rapport with somebody. And this is why we see in the research consistently, like the number one source of new jobs for those employable people that we were joking about earlier, um, or even new opportunities for entrepreneurs, et cetera, come from these weak and dormant ties because they have diverse information and new potential introductions. But they um they're not they're not strangers which means you can get to that information much faster right what about um your take on all this social media of i've got a billion friends and, and we, <laughs> we know you don't have these you know they're buying likes and all these things um and and you know what about uh y you know just we know it's silly right um, yeah. Is it a waste of time completely? How does social media fit into your world with the, the business that you're in? 
Yeah. So, so two different answers to that, right? I think if you are in any creative industry, then social media is about a following, not necessarily a group of friends. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, you still shouldn't buy because it does. If a random cell phone in China that's connected to a network of a hundred other phones that you can purchase a like or a follow from <laughs> likes you, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Right. right, um, right. So it's a it's a great way to do to that, and so I use it pretty profusely. I, I Ironically, the one that works is always changing, which drives me nuts, right? Like Facebook and Twitter were really big until, in my opinion, until 2015, 2016, when a very, at least in the United States, a very uh, polarized event happened and suddenly everyone was shouting at each other on those networks, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, for me, it's LinkedIn now, which is where okay. everybody who just wanted to talk about work and big ideas moved over. Yeah. Um, for other people, for, for, you know, for visual artists, it's, it's obviously Instagram, for yeah. photographers, even for, I think even for people in, in music, it's, it's Instagram. Yeah, I, I'm down. still skeptical on what's going to happen with TikTok, but there's whatever. Right. Um, so they're very useful for that. For the average person, I think, and I say this in, in front of a friend, my, my last book, that social media should be a supplement to, not a replacement for your existing offline network. In other words, yeah. the people that you're connected to on social media should either be people that you know in the quote unquote real world or people that you intend to move into an in-person connection, right? So it's okay to meet total strangers and develop a rhythm, but like they're not really your friends. And I would argue there's not really a strong enough bond to be asking or giving favors to unless you've tried to meet up with them face to face, even if it's pixel face to pixel face with something right. like we're doing a Zoom chat. Yeah. Um, just passively clicking like or commenting on each other's stuff, that's not a relationship yet, right? right. You have you have to spend time with someone for it to be a relationship. So I think the goal shouldn't be to brag over how many followers you have. The goal should be to find the few people who uh, are of like mind or useful mind to you and move them in to that realm where you would consider them to be an offline friend. Supplement to, not a replacement for your offline network. Yeah. Yeah. Building it slowly and, and surely is the way to go. Um, I find that the podcast has brought um, a lot of friendships if you will that build over time which is which is great because when you spend an hour with somebody you know it's kind of like it's kind of cool you get to know them and you know i mean i've had people for the first time on for um repeat guests and and i didn't do that mm -hmm. for three and a half years because i wanted to keep you know rolling it out and it was it was so good to have them come back and especially like a lot of young artists and see mm -hmm. how they've developed and, and how they've gotten better and their, their craft and their songs and so forth um what on the um all with all of the different things that you do david what is the favorite because you seem to like a lot of research but you're very very good live and so um you got a real strong like you know barrel of tricks here to pull out and say hey i want to do this <laughs> this week and i want to do this next week and any favorite that you like yeah. above and, and okay what do you got? Yeah, so I mean, I would I would consider myself a writer first and foremost. It's it's the center of gravity that everything else orbits around. Yeah. The irony is, like, if you could say, um, "Hey, Dave, we're going to pay you to sit in a chair and write for eight hours, or we're going to pay you, or even one hour, or we're going to pay you to jump on stage in front of a bunch of people and explain it in person what you just wrote," I would actually find the in person thing a bit more fun. Um, I'm extroverted. I'm probably a little narcissistic, right? Like everyone, every artist is. Right. Um, so getting out and sharing this. But I think the, I think the main reason for that is that 
what I really enjoy is the aha moment, the eyes moment when you're explaining a concept. And most of my stuff, like my goal in all of my work is to convert evidence-based ideas into practice. And so when you're explaining something and you can see it in their eyes that they get it, that, oh, that's the deal with weak ties. That's why everybody's been talking about it. Like, I love that moment. And you can't see that in writing. It, there's a disconnect. You write it one day and then you get an email 19 months later from somebody. That's a really long period of time to wait. And so I think that's the reason I enjoy it more. Um, but it's still like I've always from a, from a personal brand perspective and a sort of a personal identity perspective, I've considered myself a writer. And everything else orbits around that. Right. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about the payroll situation. Um, you know, <laughs> this take, is another good is, indication that I'm not a good fit for corporate America. But luckily, yeah. this idea is scaling. Yeah. But it was fascinating to to listen to it because, uh, uh, you know, like it, it's it you know for corporations, obviously, it's like you know don't do that. That's the death knell. You know, we hear that going on. But um, could you explain to our audience about what what is it about the payroll or, you know, paychecks and, and people, you know, allowing their salaries to be made public? And what, what have you found so far with this? Yeah. And so I should say that the real key to this is not necessarily allowing people's salary to be made public, but to having corporations making public the way in which they're determining how people get paid. Right? Okay. Most the irony of corporate America to me is that there's still a ton of resistance to this idea. It's much more common in startups and in small businesses than it is in the large like Fortune 500 companies. And the irony is that almost every Fortune 500 company I've ever worked with strives for a fair and equitable pay system, right? So if that's the goal and you feel like you're doing that, then transparency actually helps with that. Here's the situation. We think that if everybody knew how pay was determined or everybody knew what everybody got paid, there would be chaos. Everybody would be arguing, oh, he's overpaid, she's underpaid and discriminated against, and all this sort of stuff would happen. Well, the, the truth is we think that because every time there's a little glimpse of transparency, that happens. But it's actually, a lot of research suggests that it's the, it's the secrecy that's causing all that tension. Right. Because in the secrecy, you allow people to get lazy with how pay is enforced or determined. You allow those uh, that disequity to start happening. If you've got a transparent system, you will uh, either a it will be seen for the fairness that it is or b you as an organization will be held accountable to making it fair. And one is obviously a less painful path, but both are a path to a fair and equitable company. Right. So over time, we see this. We see that even when people feel that they're underpaid, an explanation for why they're being paid what they paid is it reduces a tendency to look for work elsewhere um, and, and reduces the actual number of people who look for uh, work elsewhere. We know that in a secrecy condition, people are always looking around trying to judge what each other gets paid anyway, but they're taking cues that maybe they shouldn't, right? Like, oh, so-and-so got a new car. Maybe he's overpaid. Well, maybe his wife is a doctor and that's why they've got the nice car, right? Yeah. Maybe he's actually incompetent and underpaid. You don't know that because you don't have the whole information. So if you've got that, that fair system, that it makes sense to, to share it. You don't have to share it with like, here's what Bob and Sue and Jane all get paid. You can say, here's how we determine what salaries are, right. which is om almost doing the same thing because if you wanted to plug the numbers in, you could probably figure it out. But the, the point is when people see, here's how we're determining pay, they're much more likely to report that their organization is fair and just and equitable because honestly, it's 2019. Most organizations are striving for this. They're not openly yeah. trying to discriminate based on gender or race or anything like that. 
But when you're secret about it, it, it allows people's suspicions to increase and it allows people to overlook certain details that over time lead to those discriminations. One of, the, one of the biggest ones, for example, men are much more likely to state they have more years of experience than women, right? So if you've got a secrecy condition and you're just trusting self-reported data, you're going to see a little bit of that growth just based on the experience piece that might not actually be true. Right. So if, if you've got an unfair system and your salaries are all over the board or whatever, by God, do not be transparent. Right. Yeah, but right. if you've got a fair system, the argument has, has been that, that I made in, in uh, 2016 in a TED talk that it gets still gets me a lot of hate mail. Um, <laughs> the argument has been if you've got a fair system, then we should probably move towards letting people know what it is because they're more likely to benefit from that and to and to appreciate that than they are to hate it. Yeah, you had, you had uh, I think it was in that talk that I looked at that you had mentioned there was a company that not only uh, put the salaries and the reasons, but there was also sort of a bulletin board of achievement that they kind of, you know, like to level things off to let people know that, hey, the reason they got this, you know, put two and two together, they're working harder and they're, they've accomplished yeah. X, Y, Z. Yeah, so so, um, so it was Whole Foods, um, oh, pre-Amazon okay. acquisition. Got it. Whole Foods grocery store had an intranet where you could look up the salaries of any of the uh, employees, including the store managers, and you could also look up the performance data for other stores. So if a store manager was complaining that so-and-so was getting paid more, you could look up and see, oh, well, actually, they do way more volume per square foot. They probably deserve it, right? Yeah. Um, and it was it started for exactly that reason. John Mackey, the co-CEO, was just tired of handling these little disputes between people. And so finally he said, fine, here's what you get paid. Here's what everybody gets paid. Now you can go figure, you know, right. figure out if it's fair or not. And the beautiful thing about that is it doesn't end the discussion. It begins a different discussion. Yeah. And that discussion is how can I make more money, which is what most people want to know. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so. exactly. Um, I wanted to comment also and congratulate you on your website is amazing. And, um, you know, few few folks out there, there's a resource tab that David has on his website, and it's davidburkus.com, B-U-R-K-U-S, very easy. And um, I already signed up, man, and I already downloaded. <laughs> I already downloaded <laughs> oh, one, thank of your, you. one of your um, uh, your your ebooks, and it was it was amazing. All the content you have on that is just fabulous, man. So um, I just counsel everybody to go over there and check that out. Um, what do you like to do for downtime, Dave? You, um, you know, just when you want to get away from it all, um, besides the kids, you do anything special yeah. for yourself? Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, so I don't so get away. You don't from get away too much. I, yeah. I will say I try, I try and do two things. So, uh, the first from the day-to-day, -day, uh, that thing that I sneak out to at 11 a.m. most days is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, last nice. 13 years, 14 years I've done. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a really esoteric martial art. If you ever watch the UFC, it's all, all the that time. weird stuff they do on yeah. the ground. That's yeah. what we train. Um, sort of very similar to wrestling, but it's a it's a Nate Diaz. it's an amazing martial art because I I always describe it as it's full contact yoga, right? <laughs> so it's every bit as flexibility and mindfulness as yoga, but then there's also the athleticism of like you got to defend yourself because somebody's trying to take your your head off. Yeah, which is actually a great way to be mindful. It's really hard to be worrying about some other problem when you're on the mat and someone's trying to choke you unconscious, <laughs> right? Um, so that's, so that's one. The other thing that I try and do is, so most of the time if I'm speaking at an event or working with an organization, um, I, I always come in the night before mostly cause you can't predict flight schedules. Right. But what I learned is, is that I basically have two options, right? I'm coming in the night before I can sit in my hotel room, order room service and watch terrible, you know, cable television. Or what I try and do now is I try and get into whatever city I'm in by like two 30 or three. 
And I've already on the way there looked on Yelp for like, what is the nicest, coolest, localist restaurant near where I'm at? And let me go have that experience. I'll grab a book, yeah. I'll go and I'll have that dinner. And it's, it's, I'm totally alone. Right. And I'm yeah. not, I'm not introverted. So it's not like I, I want this, but it's at least like, it's a cool little moment of downtime and appreciation of like, you know, it's going to be crazy tomorrow, but today there's this breath and this appreciation of like, wow, I'm in Chicago. I'm at this great restaurant that uh, actually Chicago is my favorite example because there was this place. I don't remember the name of it, but they served this an amazing scotch egg, uh, oh, which is really rare to find anywhere in North America. Scotch right? egg. And just you have you have that little moment. Right. So yeah. um, that's probably that's the. That's not day to day, obviously, but that's what right. I try and do before those crazy times. Yeah, nice. I, I share your love of the UFC. I mean, I used to do boxing training for quite a few years, and um, you know, I was too smart to go in the ring and get my head beat up. But I did the training, and I loved it. So I was a fight fan for a while. But um, when the UFC came out, it was like, uh oh, I, I can't even watch boxing anymore because <laughs> because the UFC is so intriguing, you know. Uh, it's a great, yeah, it's, yeah. You, I mean, you, you, you and me both. That's pretty much my story. I mean, I was, yeah. I was a lot, I was a lot younger when you're a kid. They have you in like taekwondo and kickboxing and all these striking based arts, and then you, you're at. I'm going to date myself. You're at Blockbuster, and you see that thing down in the bottom corner underneath all the other boxing and pro wrestling videos. And you're like, what is that? Yeah. And you watch it for the first time. And you're like, yeah, I can't go back. Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's over. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So, I mean, I, yeah. I still appreciate like. Uh, I still appreciate boxing actually as a and, and kickboxing as an art, et cetera. Unfortunately, they're, they're it's sort of like baseball. They're not doing enough to make it not boring. Right. Yeah. And yeah. uh, you know. And like if you so put on that it. like if I'm laying in bed and I have my phone, I, I see the UFC come on, it's like I'm wide awake now. <laughs> I'm jumping yeah. up. I'm like I'm getting into it. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've watched the pay-per-view fight the night of it. Yeah. Right. What I usually end up doing is jumping online the night, like the morning after and trying to catch the highlights or the full video if they if they post it or whatever, because they don't start till like nine o'clock at night. Yeah. You, yeah. Even though they end at midnight, you can't go to sleep. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, um, as we're wrapping up, um, what's going to happen for you in 2020? Any any big um, things going on? Is it going to be more of the same schedule that you have going more writing? What do you what are you looking forward to like in the next year? So um, a, a little bit of the same schedule. I can't share too many details on the idea, but I will tell you one one thing that's always bugged me about this writer versus the speaker life is that most of the time you do a book deal and you sell the print rights to a publishing house. And if they have an audio book production company, they just, they do it. If they don't, they sell the rights to, to another one. And it's actually very unlikely that you get to narrate your own book. You either have really? to be sort of like super famous or you have to be super stingy in the contracts. And so yeah. uh, last summer, actually, I had this incident where I had this idea and I started writing it thinking it was going to be the next book. And I got halfway, or I should say, I got a quarter of the way into the writing process and realized I was halfway done with the book. So then I was like, okay, this is gonna be really short. This is probably only gonna be 20,000 words, et cetera. What can we do with it? And that's when my mind went back to audio and having never narrated my own audiobook. And so we sold the rights to that to that to Audible. So we're gonna be releasing it literally just as an audio. I gotta go narrate it a bit later, early next year, and then it'll come out sort of um, springtime next year, which I'm really excited about that because it's a different format for me, right? I do a lot of speaking on stage. I do a lot of writing on a keyboard, but I never get to like do focus on that spoken word piece, which is really exciting. So yeah. that's probably what's, that's what's next. I can't share too many details about the idea yet, right? Um, but that's the production. It's going to be really cool. 
Awesome. Congratulations. That's really fabulous. Well, my friend, I really appreciate you coming on the Dharmic Evolution. And we will, of course, put all of your links in the show notes and get it out to everybody. And uh, I just want to wish you all of God's blessing in this new year on you and your family. And have a wonderful Christmas and great new year. Oh, thank you. And thank you again so much for having me. Friend of a friend. Under new management. And the myths of creativity, these are just some of the literary works that David has. Go over to his website and you'll be very impressed. DavidBurkus.com. Check it out. Talked about a lot of fun things today. Literary writer or fiction writer? Organizational psychology. Leave it to Beaver. The book is a souvenir of the idea. That's a Seth Godin in there. Daniel Pink, Malcolm Gladwell. Corporate didn't feel like I was a fit for them. Using your own existing network. Introvert or extrovert? Weak tie or dormant tie? Writing is the center of gravity that everything else orbits around, according to David. Payrolls and transparency? Whole Foods, intranet, and performance data. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Full Contact Yoga? I think it might be one and the same. And the exciting new Audible book that he's working on for 2020. Stay tuned. Hey, if you have not yet gone over to the Dharmic Evolution Facebook community page, please do so if you're an artist, an author, a speaker, a thought leader. If you have content that you would like to put up there, so the rest of the world can see what you're doing and support you, please do so. Also, go to dharmicevolution.com, subscribe to this show, uh, leave us a review on the blog there, and let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to hear your comments. That's it for me today. That's a wrap. I'm your host for the Dharmic Evolution, broadcasting from the Music City. Nashville, Tennessee, James Kevin O'Connor, singer, songwriter, audio video artist, master storyteller, and international talent agent. So until the next time, when we meet again, I'll either see you on the socials, or I'll see you from the stage. <laughs>